Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and reading today from a sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon. Now, I'm reading actually from a little booklet that was sent to me by the Chapel Library. This is something you can receive free. Just get in touch with them at chapel at mountzion.org, and they have a long series of things you, you can receive from them, and most of it is free. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, every once in a while, maybe you need to hear a little about him. He was born in 1834, died in 1892, born in Essex, England. And he followed two generations of pastors, converted in 1850, and later that same year preached his first sermon to a small gathering of farmers. In 1851, a village church called him as its pastor, and in 1854, when he was 19, he was installed as pastor at the New Park Street Chapel in London, which later became the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Spurgeon's sermons were published weekly from 1855 until 1916. He ministered to a congregation of nearly 6,000 people every Sunday and wrote a monthly magazine. Although pain racked his body in his later years, Spurgeon continued to preach the gospel until his death. The keys to Spurgeon's success were a life of prayer and a simple yet profound faith in the grace of his Lord. Amen. This is called Struggles of Conscience. Struggles of Conscience. We'll see how far we can get in it. Maybe the whole thing. His text is Job 13.23, How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgressions and my sins. Introduction. An evil assumption. There are many persons who long to have a deeper sense of their sinfulness. With a certain show of conscientious scruple, they make an excuse for the exercise of simple faith. That spiritual disease which keeps sinners from Christ assumes a different shape at different times. In Luther's day, the precise evil under which men labored was this. They believed in being self-righteous. They supposed that they must have good works before they might trust in Christ. Well, in our day, the evil has taken another most extraordinary shape. Men have aimed at being self-righteous after quite a singular fashion. They think they must feel worse and have a deeper conviction of sin before they may trust in Christ. I meet many hundreds who say they dare not come to Christ and trust him with their souls because they do not feel their need of him enough. They do not have sufficient contrition for their sins. They have not repented as fully as they have rebelled. Brethren, it's the same evil from the same old germ of self-righteousness, but it has taken another and more crafty shape. Satan has wormed himself into many hearts under the garb of an angel of light, and he has whispered to the sinner, Repentance is a necessary virtue. Stop until you have repented, and when you have sufficiently mortified yourself on account of sin, then you will be fit to come to Christ and qualified to trust and rely on him. Now, it is with that deadly evil that I want to grapple this morning. I'm persuaded it is far more common than some would think, and I think I know the reason of its great commonness. Here's believers' experiences mistaken, still in the introduction. In the Puritanic age, which was noted for its purity of doctrine, 
There was also a great deal of experimental preaching, that is, preaching from personal experience. Much of it was sound and healthy, but some of it was unscriptural. It took for its standard what the Christian felt and not what the Savior said, inferring from a believer's experience rather than the message which goes before any belief. That excellent man, Mr. Rogers of Dedham, that's John Rogers, a Puritan nonconformist preacher, who has written some wonderful works, Mr. Shepherd, also Thomas Shepherd, the English preacher that was silenced for Puritanism. He wrote The, the Sound Believer, and Mr. Flavel, John Flavel, the Presbyterian clergyman, a Puritan and an author, and many others, give descriptions of what a sinner must be before he may come to Christ. These descriptions actually represent what a saint is after he has come to Christ. Uh, these good brethren have, have taken their own experience of what they felt before they came into light as the standard of what every other man ought to feel before he may put his trust in Christ and hope for mercy. There were some in the Puritanic times who protested against that theology and insisted that sinners were to be bidden to come to Christ just as they were and not with any preparation either of feeling or of doing. At the present time, there are large numbers of Calvinistic ministers who are afraid to give a free invitation to sinners. They always garble Christ's invitation thus, If you are a sensible sinner, you may come, as if ignorant sinners might not come. Then they describe what that feeling of need is, and they give such a high description of it that their hearers say, Well, I, I, I never felt like that. They're afraid to venture for lack of the qualification, a standard that must be met to attain a privilege. The brethren speak truly in some respect. They describe what a sinner feels before he comes, but they make a mistake in putting what a sinner feels as if that were what a sinner ought to feel. What the sinner feels and what the sinner does until he is renewed by grace are just the very opposite of what he ought to feel and do. We are always wrong when we say one Christian's experience is to be estimated by what another Christian has felt. No, sir. My experience is to be measured by the Word of God. What the sinner should feel is to be measured by what Christ commands him to feel and not by what another sinner has felt. Comparing ourselves among ourselves, we are not wise. I do believe there are hundreds and thousands who remain in doubt and darkness. They go down to despair because there is a description given and a demanded preparation for Christ to which they cannot obtain. The description is not true because it is a description of what they feel after they have found Christ and not what they must feel before they may come to him. Well, I come this morning with all my might to break down every barrier that keeps a soul from Christ. God, the Holy Spirit, shall help me to dash the battering ram of truth against every wall that has been built up, whether doctrinal or experimental, that keeps the sinner from Christ, who desires to come and be saved by him. I shall attempt to address you in the following order this morning. First, a little by way of consolation. Then, a little by way of instruction, 
a little more upon discrimination or caution, and in the last place a few sentences in the way of exhortation. First, consolation, comfort for those who pray to know their sins. First, beloved, let me speak to you who desire to feel more and more your sins and pray the prayer of the text, Lord, how many are mine iniquities and my sins that make me to know my transgression and my sin that we read from Job 13. Let me try to comfort you. It ought to give you much solace when you recollect that the best of men have prayed this prayer before you. The better a man is, the more anxious he is to know the worst of his case. The more a man gets rid of sin and lives above his daily faults and errors, the more he cries, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Bad men do not want to know their badness. Only the good man, who has been renewed by grace, is anxious to discover his disease that he may have it healed. It ought to be some ground of comfort to you that your prayer is not a prayer which could come from the lips of the wicked, but a prayer which has constantly been offered by the most advanced of saints and by those who have most grown in grace. Perhaps that is a reason why it would not be offered by you who just now can scarcely hope to be a saint at all. Yet it should be a matter of sweet rejoicing that your prayer cannot be an evil one. The amens of God's people, even those who are the fathers in our Israel, they go up to God with it. I am sure my aged brothers and sisters in Christ can say unanimously, That has often been my prayer. Lord, let me know my iniquity and my sin. Teach me how vile I am. Lead me daily to Christ Jesus, that my sins may be put away. Well, let this reflection also comfort you. You never prayed like this years ago, when you were a careless sinner. It was the last thing you would ever think of asking. You did not want to know your guilt. No, you found pleasure in wickedness. Sin was a sweet morsel to you. You only wanted to be left alone that you might roll it under your tongue. If any told you of your evil, you'd rather they left it alone. Ah, you said, what business is that of yours? No doubt I make some mistakes and I'm a little amiss, but I don't want to be told. Well, the last meditation you would ever have thought of entertaining would have been a meditation upon your own criminality. When conscience spoke, you said, lay down, sir, be quiet. When God's word came home sharply to you, you tried to blunt its edges. You, you did not want to feel it. Is it not some comfort that you have had such a gracious change wrought in you, that you are now longing for the very feeling which at one time you could not endure? Surely the Lord must have begun a good work in you, for you would not have such wishes and desires as these unless he had put his hand to the plow and had begun to plow the barren, dry, hard soil of your heart than asking for what you already have. There's another reason why you should take comfort. It is probable you already feel your guilt, and what you are asking you have already in measure realized. It often happens that a man has the grace which he seeks for and does not know he has it. He makes a mistake as to what he should feel when he has the blessing. 
He's already got the boon which he asks God to give him. Let me just put it another way. If you are sorry because you cannot be sorry enough on account of sin, you're you're already sorry. <laughs> if you grieve because you cannot grieve enough, you do grieve already. If it is a cause of repentance to you that your heart is very hard and that you cannot repent, well, you do repent. My dear hearer, let me assure you for your comfort. When you go down on your knees and say, Lord, I groan before thee because I cannot groan. I cannot feel, Lord. Help me to feel. Well, you do feel, and you have got the repentance that you're asking for. You've got the mustard seed of repentance in a tiny grain. Let it alone. It will grow. Foster it with prayer, and it will become a tree. The very grace which you are asking for from God is speaking in your very prayer. It is repentance which asks God that I may repent more. It is a broken heart which asks God to break it. That is not a hard heart which says, Lord, I have a hard heart, soften my heart. It is a soft heart already. That is not a dead soul which says, Lord, I am dead, quicken me. Why, you are quickened. That man is not dumb who says, Lord, I am dumb, make me speak. Why, he speaks already. That man who says, Lord, I cannot feel, feels already. He is a sensible, that is, ruled by senses already, a sinner already, knowing from his senses. You are just the man that Christ calls to him. This experience of yours, which you think is just the opposite of what it ought to be, is just what it should be. Oh, be comforted in this respect. But sit not down in it. Be comforted enough to run to Jesus now, just as you are. I take you, sinner, to be just the man the minister is always seeking after. When we say that Christ came that there might be drink given to the thirsty, you are just the man we mean. You are thirsty. No, you say, I don't feel that I'm thirsty. I only wish I did. Why, that wish to feel thirsty is your thirst. You are exactly the man. You're far nearer the character than if you said, I do thirst. I have the qualification. Then I would be afraid you had not got it. <laughs> It's all the clearer proof that you have this qualification, if indeed there be any qualification, because you think you do not have it. When I say, come unto Christ, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and you say, oh, I don't feel heavy laden enough, why, <laughs> you're the very man the text means. And when I say, whosoever will, let him come, and you say, I wish I were more willing, I, I will to be willing, why, you are the man. It is only one of Satan's quibbles and a bit of hell's infernal logic to drive you from Christ. Be a match for Satan, now this once, and say, you lying fiend, you tell me that I do not feel my need of a Savior enough. I know it, that I feel my need. And as I long to feel it, I do feel it. Christ bids me to come to him, and I will come. Now, this morning, I will trust my soul, just as it is, in the hands of him whose body hung upon the tree. Sink or swim, here I am resting on him and clinging to him as the rock of my salvation. Take then these words of comfort. And then instruction. God answers by showing us our sin. You anxiously long to know all your iniquities and your sins. You pray, Lord, make me to know my transgression and my sin. Let me instruct you then as to how God will answer your prayers. 
God has more than one way of answering the same prayer. Though his ways are diverse, they are all equally useful and efficacious. It sometimes happens that God answers this prayer by allowing a man to fall into more and more gross sin. At our last church meeting, a brother, in giving his experience of how he was brought to God, said he could not feel his guilt. His heart was very hard until one day he was tempted to the utterance of an untruth, a lie. No sooner had he uttered it than he felt what a despicable creature he was to tell a lie to another, so that one sin led him to see the deceitfulness and vileness of his own heart. And from that day, he never had to complain that he did not feel his guilt enough. On the contrary, he felt too guilty to come to Christ. I believe many a man who has been educated morally and trained up in such a way that he has never fallen into gross sin finds it very difficult to say, Lord, I, I feel myself to be a sinner. He knows he is a sinner, but he cannot altogether feel it. I have known men who have often envied the harlot and the drunkard because they say, if I had been like them, I should feel more bitterly my sin and should feel that I was one of those whom Jesus came to save. It may be, though I could hope it may not be so, that God may allow you to fall into sin. God grant it may never be so, but if you ever should, you will then have cause to say, Lord, I am vile. Now my eyes see myself. I abhor myself in dust and ashes because of this my great sin, Job 40. You may not actually fall into sin, but be taken to the very verge of it. Did you ever know what it was all of a sudden to be overtaken by some fiery temptation? Did you ever feel as if the strong hand of Satan had gripped you about the loins and was pulling on you, not knowing where or why or how, but against your will, to the very verge of the precipice of some tremendous sin, you went on and on until suddenly, just as you were about to take a dive into sin, your eyes were opened and you said, Great God, how came I here? I who hate this iniquity, I who abhor it. My feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped, Psalm 73. And then, in recoil, you say, Great God, hold thou me up, for if you do not hold me, I fall indeed, Psalm 119. You discover that there is inbred sin in your heart, only lacking opportunity to spring out. Your soul is like a magazine of gunpowder, only needing the spark, and there shall come a terrible catastrophe. You discover that you are full of sin, grim with iniquity and evil devices. You only need opportunity and strong temptation to destroy your body and soul forever. It happens sometimes that this is the way God answers this prayer. And then God answers by opening the eyes of the soul. A second method by which the Lord answers this prayer is by opening the eyes of the soul, not so much by providence as by the mysterious agency of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, my hearer, that if you have your eyes open to see your guilt, you'll find it to be the most awful sight that you have ever beheld. I've had as much experience of this as any man among you. For five years, as a child, there was nothing before my eyes but my guilt. Those who observed my life would not have seen any extraordinary sin, but there was not a day as I looked upon myself in which I did not commit such gross, outrageous sins against God that often I have wished I had never been born. I know God, uh, John Bunyan's experience when he said he uh, 
He wished he had been a frog or a toad rather than a man, so guilty did he feel himself to be. You know how it is with yourselves. It is as when a housewife cleans her, her chamber, her room. She looks and, and there's no dust. The air is clear and all her furniture is shining brightly. But there is a chink, a crack in the window shutter. A ray of light creeps in and you see the dust dancing up and down. Thousands of grains in the sunbeam. It's all over the room the same, but, but she can see it only where the sunbeam comes. Well, it is just so with you. God sends a ray of divine light into the heart, and then we see how vile and full of iniquity it is. I trust, my hearer, that your prayer may not be answered as it was in my case, by terrible conviction, awful dreams, nights of misery, days of pain. Take care. You are praying a tremendous prayer when you are asking God to show you your wickedness. It would be better for you to modify your prayer and put it thus, Lord, let me know enough of my iniquity to bring me to Christ, and not so much as to keep me from him, or to drive me to despair, but only enough to be divorced from all trust in myself, and to be led to trust in Christ alone. Otherwise, like Moses, you may be constrained to cry out in a paroxysm of agony, O Lord, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. Numbers 11.15 Next time we'll continue with the message as he goes on in this same section talking about practical advice to see our sin. We're about halfway through the message at this point. Thank you so much for your attendance to this message. And I know you have been here many times. I hope that you will keep being here and enjoying the Word of God. You know, um, I have other things on the website. We now have over, I just found out, 3,400 audios featuring some of the church's great preachers like Spurgeon, Persecution stories from North Korea in English and Korean, Bible studies on a number of subjects, and a blog. Then we have a YouTube channel known as Pastor Lance. Come on over there. Or buy one of my books at Amazon.com. Just put my name in. Or contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. And I'll share details of our Saturday evening Zoom meeting for men and our Tuesday noon meeting for men and women. Thank you so much for being here today. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and this uh, audio is being released on the 3rd of October, 2022. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.